Thank you for listening to this podcast. The Ville Church provides all of its resources for free. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving financially. For more information on how to give and other resources, please visit www.theville.church. All right, praise the Lord. We're going to get into it this morning. We are going to be in, um, we're inside of James 4. I want you to turn to James. I keep forgetting we got this new clock back there. It's all fancy and doing all extra, going real fast and everything and stuff, you know. I'm like, what's going on back there, you know? All right, we're going to be in James 4. Um, I'm really excited about this text this morning because this, to me, this text is one of those texts that it, um, if you grab a hold of it with your heart, to me it is, it kind of epitomizes gospel um, or, or, or the maturity of a believer, like what that actually looks like, um, as opposed to somehow the sometimes the way we vet it out from a fleshly standpoint and and it can actually turn to kind of loftiness or or arrogance or any, something like that, whatever. But this text gets to the heart of the matter of true um, true uh, humility before the Lord. So I, I'm, I'm really excited to preach it, and I'm just praying that God will give me the words to be able to convey it correctly. So we're in James 4. Um, we're starting from verse 4. We're going through 10. But I'm going to actually read James 4, verse 1 through 4, which uh, Pastor Rodney started in last week because I want to bring us back to that. And, uh, and start from there. But it says, once again, James, in verse 3, excuse me, in chapter 3, verse 13, he started out with a question. And he said, who is wise and understanding among you, right? And then in the beginning of James 4, he hits another question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And he says this, is it not this, that your passions are at war with you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And I'm just going to touch the beginning of verse 4. He says this, you adulterous people. He hits them with the right hook, right? It's like he's shadow boxing, playing with them in the beginning, then right while they were like, yeah, you know. Because he, in, 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 in part three, in chapter three, where he's saying, who is wise and understanding among you, he goes into this teaching mode about wisdom, right? So it's like you can be sitting in the audience and receive what he's saying and be like, man, you know, this is good. You give me some good stuff, some good bullet points or whatever to learn about what real wisdom is. And in verse four, he talks about the quarrels. He turns it up a little bit, the quarrels and the fights or whatever. And then he hits a couple hard words and he says, like, you know, so you murder. You know, a couple people in the crowd are like, I ain't murdered nobody. Like, you know what I'm saying? And he's just going through this thing. And then he drops the bomb in verse four. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So let's unpack this. If you look at verses 1 through 4, he, he hits you and yours about 12 times. So when he's talking about this heart and this thing that is actually causing war and strife and quarrels and beef amongst the people of God, he brings it back on him. He goes, this is an issue with your heart. And he puts it on, he says, it's your desires and your passions. They're not in line with God. They're off. They're fleshly, and they're, they're, there's, there's a worldly wisdom that is not God's wisdom, and you're kind of dancing with the devil or whatever, and this is the fruit of it, right? So he's having that kind of conversation. And he says, you adulterous people. 
I don't know about you, but the word adultery is a strong word. Y'all agree? Right? He says you adulterous people. And he's, he's, you know, I think the way our flesh is set up sometimes, like it could be a situation where you have somebody like, a, you know, a, a, a spouse who's at work and they have an emotional relationship with somebody, right? And we get, in our flesh, we can make excuses for why it's okay. Well, I'm going through something. This person's easy to talk to, right? But nevertheless, their spouse, spouse might be like, yo, you, you my baby. You don't do no emotional talking to nobody else but me. You get where I'm coming from? And I don't know about you, if Lana's having an emotional relationship with somebody, y'all better come get me. It's in the past, I'm, I'm tearing something up, right? There's this line or whatever of what is actually right and is actually wrong or whatever, and like anything dancing on the other side of it feels adulterous. We say that in our own fleshly nature. But here James is speaking for the righteousness of God, and he's calling them out, and he took them through this thing of, of this worldly wisdom, which he describes. He's like, this wisdom you're dancing with is actually earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's demonic. He's, he's giving these real strong words. It's not this kind of, oh, you know, I'm kind of dancing over here. I'm not really doing all of this stuff. He's being very plain with his words. It's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. That's in James 3.13. Then he goes into verse 4, I mean chapter 4 into verse 1, and he's talking about the passions and the desires, the coveting, right? This thing where we want something, but it's not in line with God, and he said it's adultery. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There is not this thing where he is leaving room for us to kind of play this game at all. He's telling us where our flesh is at. Our fleshly nature does nothing but commit adultery outside of Christ. That's why he's using strong words, because he doesn't want to leave any room for anybody to think anything else. This isn't about morality and being good. He's telling us plain and simply who we are outside of Christ, right? But he's also talking in this specific context, he's talking to people of God who in their faith and in their belief have made room for this thing where they've taken the truth of God and made it small and allowed these things that are actually worldliness in their ideology and their theology. Are y'all with me so far? Y'all staring at me like I'm crazy. I just want to make sure we're good. So desires and their passions. It's the flesh. It's a lack of humility before the Lord, right? It's what's wrong. There's a lack of humility before the Lord. It's a lack of needing God. So the people he's talking to have begun to make another way outside of God. God is not exalted. He's not high. He's not trustworthy. And so it's like, I believe my way is actually another way. It's actually the opposite of what we're going to see in verse 10. In verse 10, it says this. It says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So the problems with our flesh is that it believes it's smarter than God. It believes that it can actually move faster to God than God. And ultimately, in verse 3, what it's saying is what we actually are asking for and desiring is actually outside of what is truth and right before God. We are not capable of actually even wanting the right thing outside of the Lord. Y'all with me so far? So he calls them, you adulterous people. 
There's no way to actually do this thing and, and, and not be at war with God. There's no way to actually not submit to God in the truth of his word and two-time him. It ends up making us be enemies of God, right? This is a really hard thing. I want you to grasp this because I don't know if I can articulate it as good as I want to. But, I, but what I want you to be asking yourself as we work through this text today is kind of letting this kind of scripture arrest you. Because if you know the Lord, you're allowed to. You can be just as guilty as sin up in here or whatever, right? Because the blood of Jesus covers your sin and moves away all condemnation, right? So we're actually, we're actually justified in the work of Christ Jesus, but he, sanctif- he sanctifies us. James is doing the work of calling these people to walk in the light. It's good news, right? The best thing he can offer them is Jesus, right? So that's what we get here. But like, ask yourself, where, where do I try to do a two-step, right? Where, where, where am I trying to sneak in the club and dance with somebody else or whatever outside of God? You don't understand that unless you've ever been in a club or whatever and saw your girlfriend <laughs> dance with somebody. You don't know the pain right there. You don't get it. But that's what he's asking us to chew on. What is that? So in verse 5, he says this. He says, or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So he goes ahead and he hits them. He calls them adulterous people. He talks to them about playing games and actually being on the side of being an enemy of God. And he goes into and he doubles down and he says, that God, that the word says he yearns jealousy, jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. What does that actually mean? It means that the spirit, that Holy Spirit, is actively yearning and desiring the devotion of our hearts to God. You understand? That there is a grief, like the Bible talks about grieving the Holy Spirit when we actually oppose God or when we put ourselves in places where we're enemies to God's truth as his children, right? God is actually jealous of that because he knows that he's the best for us, that there is, there is no best life now realized outside of us being attached to the vine. There's no such thing. It's all foolishness. It's all, it's all futility. So he's telling him, he's like, well, you think this text is a joke? You think this is a joke? God's jealousy to, to, to have intimacy with you, to see you grow, to build you, to exalt you? Do you think that his way is not the best way? He's laying this at their feet. And then in verse 6, he says this, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's talk about opposing the proud. Opposing the proud. Let me read Romans 8, 20. This is not going to be on the screen, but I'm going to read this to you. It says, for creation was subjected to futility, and not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is what Paul says in Romans. If you notice, it says, will be set free from its bondage to corruption. We are actually slaves to corruption 
in our flesh. Not able to produce anything else outside of the power of the Holy Spirit, right? We are slaves to it. When he calls us adulterous people, it's not even an insult about how well they're actually doing it. It's he is enlightening them to the truth. He's like, it doesn't seem like y'all actually get this. You actually seem like you have confidence in something else outside of the Lord. So I need to remind you of the condition that you're actually in so I can exalt the condition of the cross. Y'all with me so far? It's not for the sake of condemnation. It's for the sake of freedom that he calls them adulterous people. When it escapes them, when it escapes us, we're in trouble. But he says, in Romans 8, he says, for the creation was subjected to futility. The whole creation, this whole entire world, is set up to oppose us in our flesh, all right? When this scripture says, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, excuse me, when it says that God opposes the proud, opposing the proud, listen, when you're outside of the will of God, everything in this world is set up to go against you, right? So when we read in the scripture and it says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose its soul? There's no way to win. No matter, you may be doing something in the world where you may be able to make money really, really fast. You may be able to be to build. You may be able, um, intellectually just sharp as a tack. You may have all of these things that the world will set you on a platform and go, you are out of this world, right? You may be like Einstein, and it's just your intelligence is, is absolutely unbelievable. You may be able to go inside of an organization and climb to the top so quick because your leadership skills are just above everybody else's. These are not necessarily bad things, but if we make them the thing that gives us our identity, our purpose, our value, the world is actually set up where it's futile. It's a worthless endeavor. You can actually gain the world and actually lose your soul. Are y'all with me so far? He's trying to sweep the rug from under their confidence in their flesh, right? Saying God actually opposes the proud. Things aren't even set up for you to win. All these trophies you're going to get on this earth for your endeavors or whatever are going to be a lie, right? They're not going to produce anything. But on the flip side, he says, but God gives grace to the humble. So the world is stacked against you for the purpose of giving you true hope in exchange for false hope, for worldly wisdom. But on the flip side of that, he gives grace to the humble. I'm going to read you a scripture real quick. This is Isaiah 6, um, and I'm going to be going through 1 through 7. And Isaiah is caught up in a, a vision, right? And it says, in the year of King Uzziah, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and two he covered his face, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In the foundation 
of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. In verse 5, which is really my point, I read all of that before you because I want you to understand, I want you to, I just wanted to mess with your idea of God's glory. It's beyond anything we could comprehend. We just read it, but I don't know anything about something with six wings and faces. It's scary in a very holy way, right? But this is where he's at in this dream, Isaiah. In verse 5, he says this. He says, and I said, woe is me, for I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Oh, it's gangster. All right, I'm about ready to crowd surf. All right. So when he comes before the Lord, Isaiah, which in our worldly probably standard, we would see Isaiah and be like, man, this is the guy, right? He's anointed. We would celebrate all the good things about him. But Isaiah comes before the presence of the Lord, and he says, woe unto me, and he says, woe unto all of us. In his experience, in that moment when he, when he is there before the Lord and gets a glimpse, nothing is vague anymore. He's wretched. We're all wretched. He's having this moment where like, woe unto us if we think that we are actually cute. If we think that we actually got this within our works or whatever, like I don't care how good you think you are, Lord, we're unclean. He's having that moment. And that fast, grace to the humble. He humbles himself, and he admits his brokenness and his sin, and the angel flies to him and says, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Y'all with me? This is God. This is how he gives grace to the humble, right? It's a big deal. Because often we write kind of the prescription of what we think humble is, and it's usually this false, fake humility. And as we go on a little bit more, I'm going to go take you into some very strong words that describes our condition in our flesh, our sin and our brokenness, what that actually looks like. Verse 7 says this, it says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you, right? So I want to give you this example. You know like in the military, I've never been in the military, so if somebody's in the military, y'all could call me out afterwards. But we see, this on, we see this on TV all the time. But you know how like, there's like an obstacle course, and then they get to the wall, like that big old wall or whatever, and like you got to climb up the wall? And like sometimes the wall is intentionally set up where no human being can get up the wall by themselves. Right? You ever seen that before? And then you, have, you see the rest of the team, somebody kind of like, they have to do this thing where somebody gets on the wall and another person throws something up or whatever, and then the last person like leans over and they let that person hang to pull that person up. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? Okay. This is our condition. This is our condition as human beings on earth. 
we are in a situation where we are in a, we live in the futility of this world. We're trapped. Our sin is wretched by all means. No matter what you do to try to wrestle it down in your own strength, you are trapped. You're at the bottom of the wall with no way to get over the wall. There's no way to get over the wall, right? You can try to come up with whatever ideas you can. You can't get over the wall. But the problem with us is that we are actually crazy enough and prideful enough that, like, we'll keep trying to get over the wall. And if we don't get over the wall, we'll start coming up with why we like it down at the bottom of the wall, right? Like, we'll be like, yo, I don't even want to come up there, you know what I'm saying? Because it's crazy. The sun is beating down the wall, kind of, it's throwing shade on me, like, whatever. Like, I was, I actually, I'm comfortable down here, right? Like, our flesh is, like, foolish. We'll try to make sense out of it, and we refuse to be stuck. We refuse to actually be needy. We refuse to be humble, right? We refuse to say like, woe is me. And we're always arm wrestling God like, I'm good. But no, we're not good. We're not good. We're not good. God is good. Jesus is good. We're not good, right? We're not good. Confidence in our flesh, it's not good. It's war with God. When we talk about worldliness and what worldliness is, it's the dismissal of the need for God. It's to buy into the ways of our flesh and, and, and our abilities and exchange them for neediness. It's a refusal to be humble. That's worldliness. That's what worldliness is. It's an attempt to build something significant up under God's nose. When the fact of the matter is we're stuck under the wall and God's hand is right there for us to grab it, right? Let me give you an example about my daughter, Monty, or whatever, right? Monty, when she was younger, she used to get in trouble, right? And so she'd get in trouble. I explained to her what she did. And I'm like, all right, babe, you know, you have to go to your room and, you know, that may be the punishment. The problem with money, which is the problem with all of us, is that I go to her room and she would like do this thing where like she might be playing some music and in the room doing the running man. Like she was not going to let me know that like she felt her punishment. You get where I'm coming from? Like she's like, no, you ain't going to make, like whatever, you know what I'm saying? So I go to her room, she's in there dancing and two-stepping or singing like letting me hear it like, you know, you're punished. I don't feel your punishment. I don't feel you trying to call like... She just was like, yo, you ain't, you ain't getting me. You feel me? So I'm like, hey, listen, all electronics off, all right? Next thing you know, she's reading a book. And I go by the room, and she's like, mm, oh, this book is so good. She's just rebellious with it, right? You know what I'm saying? But she was like, I am not humbling myself, period, to receive this. She's like, I'm not with it. That's us. I don't want to be as broke and poor as I am. I mean that in a spiritual sense, right? I mean that in a fleshly sense. I mean that in a, in a, in a capable sense to accomplish righteousness, right? 
to actually produce truth. I want to be good. I don't know about you. I want to be good. I want to be like, you know, like I got my stuff together, right? I want to like do things like my flesh wants to be exalted in the sense of like, I want to be known as being efficient, you know? Y'all heard me make a joke not too long ago where like, you know, Lana called me an intellectual like a couple weeks ago and I almost cried because I thought I had it, you know, like I was like, whew, I've made it. You know, that felt so good to my flesh, like, you know what I'm saying? It really, really did or whatever, but like, that's the foolishness in my soul. It's something, there's this tendency to want to buy in to this thing that is other than the truth, right? James says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. What does it look like to submit yourselves to God? Verse 7, he runs through this whole thing through verse 9. He begins to get into this application process. He starts off in verse 4. I mean, beginning of verse 4, he starts off with asking him a question. Verse 4, he brings it to a head and he says, you adulterous people. And then he tells him in verse 7, like, you need to submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Right? He says, God gives grace to the humble. Right? He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves, therefore, to God. What is he actually asking them to do at that moment? Is he asking them to go work hard? Is he asking them to go concentrate really, really hard on being good people and be better than, than, you know, than they are? Is he saying to go write out a list of all the moral hills they can climb and just be the best people in society for the sake of God? He doesn't tell them that. He tells them to be wretched, right? Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. I'm going through this list right here or whatever, and I'm just thinking about doing, 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 making myself better. And in verse 9, he kind of just trips you and says, be wretched and mourn and weep. It's not how we function. That's just kind of counterintuitive, right? Be wretched. He's saying, it's what we just saw inside of Isaiah. He's saying, come before the Lord and confess your wretchedness. Stop fighting God, right? Stop trying to write another script that makes you, that exalts you and lifts you up and makes the need for the Lord null and void, right? Romans 7, verse 18, Paul says this. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. In verse 24, that same chapter, he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the epitome of being wretched right there. Removing any confidence in the flesh, receiving what is the truth about ourselves, that I can't even produce good on my best day. 
I can't produce it on my, on my best day. What comes out of me, what is actually good, is actually the outpouring of what I received through what Jesus Christ did on the cross, right? It's what he did on the cross. If you get over this wall, I'm going to get over this wall because the Lord reached down and gave me his hand and pulled me over. Do you understand where I'm coming from? It's this thing of being, I am actually trapped in this place. I'm not able to achieve righteousness on my own accord. I'm not able to muster it up. And when I try to muster it up, I mess it all up. But God's, in his gra- God's grace is right there close by, and it's saying, I can help you over this wall every single time. All day, every day, I'm here to empower you, but you can do nothing apart from me, right? If you're not attached to the vine, what can you produce? You can't produce fruit outside of me. And that's what Paul is saying. In grasping his wretchedness, he's saying like nothing good dwells in me. And every time I fall for it, I end up flat on my face. Y'all with me? Like when you talk about gospel, when you talk about maturity as a believer, most of us think that this walk of maturity is this thing where you just get so sharp in your holiness and all the wisdom you have and everything else, and we get all kind of lofty and high-minded, but it's actually this loss of confidence in the flesh, right? And this trust in the Lord, right? Us decreasing and Him increasing. And it's based in this idea of how the power of what Jesus did on the cross, the gospel gives us actual power to actually repent, to actually lean into our wretchedness and at the same time carry the glory of being justified. You understand? In a way where it's like, it's not that it's condemning, but it's actually hope right? It's actually salvation. It actually brings joy to us. You understand? That, that, the condemnation that comes from going, I am broken, that thing that we feel, and I feel it often, it's because of our idolatry that that hurts. It's because of our attachment to the world, because we're like, it can't be this bad. It can't be this broke or whatever. Like, like we can't be this crippled that we cannot get up and walk and move and build and make and shake up the world apart from the Lord. But it's the truth. I'll read something to you. Second Corinthians 12 says this right here. I just want to use this example because I feel like it just doubles down on what we're seeing in this text. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 says, um, this is Paul talking, he says, so to keep from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect and weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For for when I am weak, then I am strong. Y'all see this? This is what happens. This is what the gospel actually does in the life of the believer. 
It actually, when we come to the cross, when Christ beckons us to the cross and empowers us to actually bring our mess, we actually trade what we once called strength to be weak. And he actually gives us power. Like it's the power of Christ that actually works in our weakness, not in your awesomeness. That's not what the power of God is partnering up with, right? Even from an evangelical standpoint inside of the church, we've often rendered the gospel and the good news of the gospel and kind of went on our, our evangelistic kind of missions looking for people that seem like they got it. That'd be a good Christian, right? And we'll actually skip past people who look like they're just like the world has just ran through them and just done them and just they're through. Like, like got too much mess going on. But actually, the Lord is looking for a weak, contrite, broken heart, right? It's what he does to us, through the power of the Holy Spirit. He breaks this confident confidence in the world, this confidence in nothing. And he elevates Jesus on the cross. He elevates Jesus on the cross. He reveals how Christ is high and lifted up, that he's actually a savior who's come to actually save us from the lies that we actually believe, this false confidence that is really no confidence at all in our flesh. In Joel 2, it says this. It says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. What Joel was saying there is this right here. To show their outward expressions in the Old Testament, that in the Old Testament, they would actually take their garments and rip their garments. It was one of the ways that they would actually show, like, we are grieving or whatever the case may be. It's a way for them to show kind of just, this is where we're at, right? But he says, rend your hearts and not your garments. It's very similar to what James is saying. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He's saying that rend your hearts because your heart is desperately wicked. Put a choke hole on your heart and keep it close there. Because the moment you forget that your heart is desperately weak, wicked, you will start pulling down the things of God and actually trying to make them nothing. That's, our sick, that's the condition of our hearts. That's why the scripture talks about us staying close to the vine, because outside of the vine, we cannot produce any good whatsoever. Do you understand where I'm coming from? This is important. This is important. This is important because what will, what is the stumbling block is our false confidence in our flesh. We slide into it all day long. So it's like with fear and trembling that we have to, that we're before the Lord and like trusting in what God is actually doing in our hearts, right? And the cross is being magnified for us or whatever. That th this, is, this is of utter importance for your walk with the Lord. Because when you come, become disconnected, you make a strange fruit. So he's saying, Joel is saying in his text, he's saying, rend your hearts. Be wretched. Walk in the light with your brokenness and your sin. Hold it into the light. Hold it in the light by the grace of God. As God gives you grace to confess and give truth, hold it there. Because it's what's going to make the sweetness of the cross so beautiful. It's a part of that process. It's a two-step. Sometimes, like, we, we, you know, I was talking to somebody not too long ago, and I said, um, I asked him, I said, you know, like, 
why are you a believer? Like, why do you, like, you know, like, what's this, what is this about for you? And, and their response was, well, I want God to bless my way. I want him to bless every, you know, what I do. And I really don't want my life to be really hard. And I want just like, I want the Lord to just, you know, make my life easy and good. And I had to tell him, I was like, you completely missed it. You missed it. It's not a good luck charm. It's not a good luck charm. You're completely stuck, right? You're at the bottom of the wall. Your sin has actually separated you from God. You are actually stuck in the middle of the ocean with no paddle, no nothing. Treading water, you are completely stuck. That is the condition. It's not, you're not just good and you need something else to make things go a little bit better. You are completely in line for the wrath of God to be released on you because of your sin. Because he's a holy God and our sin won't stand up. Our, 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 our works of, of, of good that we think we can muster up, they'll just burn up into nothing before him. They don't count as anything at all, right? So I had to tell them, it's not really what it is. It's not what it is. We've offended a holy God. There's no, there's no way to make that right. It's been made right through the work of Jesus Christ, right? It's a free gift to you, but it costs him dearly. You understand? This idea of being wretched and the way James is actually telling them to lean into this and mourn and weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He's telling them that he said, he's like, yo, you have forgot. You have forgot. You think he's a good luck charm, right? You think that this is not that serious. You think you can actually do this two-step and halfway play in the world and then play on the other side or whatever, and that it's all good. You as the people of God have actually brought into something or whatever, have brought in the ideology that makes the things of God just kind of like, uh, whatever. He's just a good luck charm. But he's like, no, you, you, you can't do that. Go back to being wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And then in verse 10, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. When Christ saves you, when he saves you, when the Lord saves you through the work of Christ, it humbles you. There's never not humility involved in that process, right? It's, it's never not humility actually involved in that salvation process. We come to the cross completely guilty, right? And we stand up completely made clean because of the work of Jesus Christ. We get over the wall because the Lord pulls us up by his work by what he does through Jesus. He sends Jesus, he saves us, but we are stuck. We are wretched in our sin. We are unable to offer anything before the Lord. No works, no nothing, no saving, the loss, anybody else, whatever, good works, none of that stuff adds up. 
It's the work of Jesus Christ. So when we function, let me, let me tell you how this looks from a day-to-day basis. I think often like when we move through our day and there's things where we're maybe having thoughts that are wicked, maybe hateful to our neighbor, um, we have them and we don't bring God in on the conversation, right? And so it, it, it kind of looks like this right here. Like, if you are um, a male or female and you are, and you are dealing with lust, often we have, we have these situations and maybe we look somewhere, we think something that we should, but that we know is not godly, but we just let it sit on us and condemn us, right? But when you look at the gospel and how the gospel removes sins, when we look at Isaiah and we think about this, this, this angel coming and saying, yeah, I see that. Your guilt is gone. You're made clean. You understand? If Isaiah was in the corner somewhere having this conversation and he maybe felt it, saw it, but didn't proclaim it or bring it before the Lord, then now he's just carrying that condemnation, right? You get where I'm coming from? What God has actually given us when the curtain is broken down and we're actually able to come into the presence of the Lord and be attached to the vine all day long, we get to bring this ugly mess before the Lord and say, God, let's have this thought. Thank you for, your, for, for that you cleanse me, that you clean me, Father Lord. Thank you, Father Lord, that you have wiped my sins away. Thank you, Father, Lord, that you've given me a heart that actually causes it, that, that you allow it to actually hurt when I'm not loving my neighbor well. That you actually let it hurt when I have a thought about somebody else or whatever that is a lie. It's, it doesn't line up with your truth. It's not godly, right? Like God is, he actually gets to, he gets to, he's in the conversation with you all day long. When you look at this text with Isaiah, it's not like Isaiah admitted this thing and all of a sudden he got this lashing from the Lord. It was dealt with immediately. Do you understand where I'm coming from? I'm trying to just make it really, really practical for you because I don't want you to miss this opportunity of freedom you have where you're actually allowed to be wretched. You're actually allowed to be wretched. Because in your flesh you are wretched. That's what Paul was saying. For I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. My flesh is wretched. That is a truth that we all carry as believers. And then there's another truth that, that reigns supreme over that. We are made clean. 100% clean, justified because of the work of Jesus Christ. Y'all get where I'm coming from? So we don't have to walk in condemnation because of this ugly fleshly side of ourselves, we actually get to reconcile that with the cross all day long. Lord, my lips are unclean. Boom, your lips are clean. God, I just had a bad thought about somebody, whatever, Father Lord. I actually don't want my heart to be like that. Thank you for even letting me not want my heart to be like that. Boom. You don't have to carry that. I died. I carried that on the cross. You get where I'm coming from? It's functional. God is alive. His spirit is alive. It dwells inside of you. It's in us. This is what James is getting at. He is trying to make them remember, like, yo, have y'all forgotten? Did y'all fall asleep or something? Like, don't do the double-minded game. 
and try to take these two sides and bring them together or whatever as if, if they're, as if they're truth and exist together. The gospel, the work of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus reigns supreme over all your failures as a believer. So don't try to give light to your failures and make them into something and give them truth and give them something to substantiate them. Let them be wretched. Because on the flip side, the powerful blood of Christ reigns supreme over everything. Do you understand? And washes our sins away. Every day, all day, eternally. It's our eternal hope. Man, I'm going to throw a chair in here, man. Y'all better wake up. The cross puts our wretchedness, the wretchedness of us all on display. It makes the magnitude of our sin unfathomable because it attaches a price tag that is inconceivably expensive beyond the understanding of mankind. The wretchedness of our sins, the nakedness of it, is traded for the eternal garment of salvation, forgiveness, and mercy, and grace through Christ. That's what we're in. That's what, gets, that's, that's what we get for our wretchedness. That's what we get. Church, I'm going to pray for you. We're going to end right there. Then we're going to take communion. God, Father, I just, Lord, I, um, I thank you, Father. I thank you for our church. I thank you, Father, Lord, that uh, I know that we wouldn't even exist. We wouldn't even be here right now. Um, this church would never hold together outside of your power. Um, so we praise you, Father, Lord. We thank you, Father, for making us joy and being dependent on you. Father, I pray that you lean us into this all the more, Father Lord. Where it's needed, Father Lord, help us to lean into our wretchedness. Help us to submit. Help us to purify ourselves by trusting in Jesus Christ, Father. Help us to receive the free gift of grace and mercy that you have lavished on us through Christ Jesus. I pray, Father Lord, that you would give us rest in trying to be enough, trying to make it all work, trying to be good enough, trying to please people. Help us, Father Lord, to admit our idolatry in these areas, Father Lord. And then grace us to receive what you have done through Jesus, that you have finished it all. That this rightness that we crave so much has been accomplished through the work of Christ. That the condemnation and the sin and the guilt and everything that tries to, 
that, that, that the enemy accuses us with all day long and tells us we're never enough. Father Lord, I thank you, Father Lord, that those sins have been paid for. That judgment has already been delved out for. Therefore, they no longer have power. I pray that we would rest in that. Not just be able to give lip service and say those things, but that we would actually rest in that that it would actually mean everything in the world and it would be a precious thing to us. Because in grasping our wretchedness, Father Lord, and the magnitude of it, the damage of it, the hatefulness of it, the idolatry of it, the adultery of it, that we would also understand the preciousness of the blood of Jesus that wipes all of that stuff away. So I thank you, Father Lord, that in our weakness, you make us strong. It's not a weak thing that we are weak. It's a true thing that we are weak. It's the truth. No matter how good people dress it up, it's the truth. We need you, Lord. That's our cry this morning. We need you, Father. You can come up with a million ideas and different things, Father, Lord, but we need you. We need you to be able to love each other well. We need you to even help us to love you well, Father. We don't possess and carry these things out of our good nature. It's completely opposite of our nature. So we know, Father, Lord, when we sing out in worship this morning, that is actually a miracle that is happening. It is a miracle that has happened. The fact that we would endure in this body of believers and come here every Sunday, it's actually a miracle that's happening. So God, we exalt you, Father Lord. We praise you and we worship you, Lord. We recognize you as being exalted above all things as much as we can possibly grasp that. Well, we thank you, Father Lord, that in your word, you say that if we actually humble ourselves, you would exalt us. We, try, we, we, we leave that in your hands. We leave that in your hands. We're not trustworthy with deciding what being exalted even looks like. So Lord, I pray that you continue to grace us and I know you will to hold the vine, to hug the vine closely and be attached to you and trust you for the fruit that comes forward. God, we pray for anybody this morning, Father Lord, that doesn't know you as their Lord and as their Savior, Father Lord, that doesn't know Christ as their Lord and Savior, Father. We pray that Holy Spirit will do a work in their heart this morning. And we invite that person to come pray with us as we do communion. But we thank you for our family that we have as a church, our immediate family. Um, all the people here that are committed to chase after you and grow and love towards each other. And we just thank you for that miracle that we wouldn't have outside of the work of Jesus Christ. We can do any, can't do anything apart from you. And we rest in that place. And thank you for all that you add on and do through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.